0: Hello, and welcome to the How CMOs Commit podcast. I'm Margaret Molloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel & Gale. This is a podcast to explore how the world's top CMOs are building their brands and the professional commitments they are making as leaders. From the decisions facing CMOs to the commitments they are forging, The conversations are uniquely vulnerable and strategic. Please be sure to listen to the end when I provide my reflections. This is how CMOs commit. Hello and welcome to the Global Asia Matters Business Summit. This is the Chief Marketing Officers panel. I'm your host, Margaret Molloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel Gale. Siegel Gale is a preeminent brand strategy, design and experience firm. It is my privilege to chair this conversation. At this time of year, many of us reflect on what we've learned in the past year and what trends we anticipate going forward to the next and what a period it has been. Shifting stakeholder expectations of companies, digital transformation and pendulum swings in how work has done, is essentially creating dramatic changes for companies and in particular, the marketing function. Amid all this change, one thing is certain, leaders must adapt and to do this, they must learn. And the companies who do it well will have a distinct advantage. Today, I'm joined live by four CMOs and we're going to talk about their learning with an emphasis on the customer. We will explore what they are learning, how they are learning, and how they sustain learning both personally and across the teams. After the introductions, I will have individual conversations with the CMOs. I will then return to each for our commitments round and conclude with my reflections. So speakers, as I introduce you, please answer this question in one word. What's the most important lesson that the pandemic has taught you as a CMO? And to our audience, I invite you to also answer the question, your one word lesson from your vantage point in the chat. Let's begin. Welcome, Ellie Norman, Director of Marketing and Communications at Formula One. Ellie, you're usually in London.
1: Where are you joining from today? Firstly, Margaret, thank you for having me. Pleasure to join you. I'm joining you from Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Super.
0: And what's your one word? Hope. Hope. Well, I know someone who's very hopeful, and he's next up, our friend, Peter De DeVenedictis, the Director of Business and Sales Operations for the Middle East and Africa at Microsoft. Peter, where are you today?
2: Well, as you can see from the background, um, in Dubai, this is actually the view from, it's nighttime now in Dubai, so this is actually, I'm looking at my home office, and that's actually the view with beautiful Dubai uh, skyline, and that's Burj Khalifa there in the background.
0: And your word, please, Peter.
2: Empathy. Empathy.
0: Empathy. Okay, I'm going to hold you on the explanation and we'll keep people in suspense for a few moments. My friend, Rajas R, CMO, Tata Consultancy Services, TCS. Are you in Mumbai this afternoon? Yes, I'm in Mumbai and it's, it's pouring outside, Margaret. <laughs> I, well, those of us joining from Ireland will find that very familiar and comforting. So tell me, what's your word, please? Authenticity is my word. Authenticity. And finally, Fernando Machado, CMO Activision Blizzard. Fernando, I think I detect Miami.
3: It is Miami. Uh, Today I'm in Miami. Usually I'm like between Miami and LA. LA next week, Miami this week. Thanks for the invitation to join. I was thinking about my word. It's a very hard one to answer. I think that hope and empathy are probably better than my my own words. So I really like the words of the of the panel. Like I think mine is connection. Yeah, we're going to hold you know.
0: on the explanation and we'll get to that momentarily. We're all intrigued by the four words, and I love that you all have four different words. Thank you, folks. So, Ellie, let's begin with your conversation, please. You said your word was hope. Tell us why hope was your greatest lesson professionally from the pandemic period.
1: I think when you think about crisis or in this case, clearly the sort of pandemic, everyone's lived in amongst the mist of fear and isolation. And I think from that, the kind of the learnings that come out are sort of profound, positive changes possible when people actually kind of work together and things are elevated to sort of a higher human truth. And people stop sort of splitting and sort of diverging things. And I think that what we've learned is that we can actually fix and solve problems when everyone does come together. And I think we've seen that through the pandemic and that should give us hope, especially as we face into uh, sustainability and climate change. There are solutions out there. It just requires us all to work together. So that's why hope for me is important one of the themes of this conference is purpose.
0: Let's anchor in. What is the purpose at Formula One?
1: So we talk about our mission being to unleash the greatest racing spectacle on the planet. I think, you know, as we reflect, I think it's fair to say that we've come through the pandemic relatively strongly. I think it's a symptom of Formula One essentially being about innovation engineering and technology and so everything that we do is all about iterative changes and so we were able to pivot and uh, adapt very quickly when we weren't racing we looked at it from two levels how can we bring engineers together to help solve a problem and because they're so brilliant and kind of clever. They all came together, which is so unusual to have competing teams working together. And they reverse engineered breathing aids and ventilators in 100 hours and actually built and produced and donated to the NHS, the health system in the UK, uh, 10,000 units. The other side of that in sort of through my world, the marketing world, was actually how do we provide people hope and escapism in something that is actually quite terrifying. And so we took all of our Formula One racing when we weren't physically racing. We took that online and we hosted virtual Grand Prix's with our drivers. So it actually gave fans and people, something to congregate around a form of escapism and sort of entertainment.
0: It's a remarkable story, Formula One, really, as I understand it, founded around 1950, grown from what might have been maybe a seven race calendar, then to one of the largest global sporting events in any calendar. To what do you attribute that success?
1: I think it's the constant pursuit of improvement. And that sort of is what drives sort of Formula One forward. I often sort of describe it as a real life laboratory to really sort of test technology solutions in innovation, but within a a live environment where we all know there are so many kind of variables. And when you sort of unpick and you understand some of the kind of attitudes and the motives that people, fans are attracted to, it's quite different to anything any other sport. So we are predominantly a spectator sport. It's really hard to participate in Formula One, like football or kind of a bat and ball game. And we are people tend to love to look into the sport as almost something that is is done by superhumans. So you have the most advanced technology. Coupled with these super superhumans that are really sort of defying what is possible from a physics um, perspective, and so there is this this combination of man and machine pushed to the limits, um, and they work in harmony versus against each other. So there is that sort of thrill of the kind of danger or the unexpected.
0: Quite beautiful uh, scenario to depict. It's interesting to talk about your fans. A lot of habits have changed on the part of many consumers during the pandemic. Are there any habits that you think that will change forever?
1: What we've seen is obviously we sort of uh, we were fortunate and we did get back racing last year. We did 17 races in 13 countries and this year we have 22 races in 20 countries. And for those races where we've had fans back in attendance, what we've seen is far more multi-generational experiences taking place. And I think that's um, quite an interesting sort of insight into how sort of families or kind of people, I think coming back to Fernando's point around connections, are really sort of reevaluating what's truly important, those moments in life, and where can you have those shared experiences and form those memories. So I think the, the notion of nostalgia, the notion of multi-generation connections can happen around a life Event. But I think what's interesting is also how that can then manifest itself, particularly for younger audiences within a virtual and digital space. And I think that we will continue to see the importance of connections and experience, but also really start to see how technology can can aid that and evolve that to provide experiences that are far more accessible um, to people. Ellie, could you share an insight
0: regarding the Asian fan or the Asian market in particular? I do recognize that is a very broad territory, but are there any myths or misconceptions people may have in your industry regarding those fans?
1: So if I think for us, kind of Asia, we have physical races in Japan and in sort of China. So if I sort of focus on those kind of markets and what we see from those kind of markets is they do tend to have younger sort of fan base for us. So it's a younger population than many of the other kind of parts of the world. And I think that's because the sport, particularly in sort of China, is far newer to this audience And what we certainly see is a far greater level of maturity in terms of digital adoption. And we see that in the way that an Asian consumer views um, Formula One races. So for example, we estimate that in Japan and China, about 39% and sort of 20% of F1 viewing will come through streaming services. And when we look at this on a global basis, it's vastly different. So your global kind of average for us is about 4%, but sort of hugely, hugely up in China at 39% and Japan at 20%. So what I think is, you know, if you're in in sport or anything else, TV, for us, is very, very kind of stable. Is about 17% up on 2019 TV viewership. But we certainly see that as a trend in Asia that is far different to anywhere else in the world.
0: Do you believe, Ellie, that Asia is leading the way and are early adopters or that is a particular dynamic in the region that's unique to the region?
1: I would say certainly early adoption. So, um, we also see that play through in our gaming as well. So, actually, just the sheer engagement and the number of Chinese fans that will participate in esports, both at a competition level and also the viewership, is far higher than we tend to see elsewhere. And do you
0: think where Asia is now, other markets are going?
1: Yeah, so certainly on the esports and the gaming side, we will always tend to look at what's happening in our sort of regions to then see how that trend will start to kind of play through. And the other interesting um, territory for us is Brazil. And we see sort of a very high adoption of esports and gaming there as well. But I would say China is definitely sort of a leader in that space for us. Ellie, let's talk about partnerships and the role
0: of partnerships in your brand building. Anything worth noting in the recent period there?
1: So I think uh, just, you know, we've spoken about sort of connections, but I think what's very important and what we see more and more of is collaboration and what you can learn from collaboration and actually creating new spaces. And I think an area that sort of I will particularly sort of look at is luxury and sort of fashion and obviously sort of very fitting if we look at what sort of virgil was able to create for uh, louis vuitton and how he was able to kind of bring together collaborations with sort of more accessible sort of brands and create something a new space and really tap into that sort of zeitgeist specifically for us i think there's something to be said for how we can be more open as sports to collaborating And so a couple of things that we've been sort of working on, uh, we did one collaboration in Austin with the NBA. And again, it's very rare that you get large sporting brands coming together to collaborate and to actually sort of create sort of content and experiences that both fan bases enjoy. But we did that with the NBA in Austin in October. And last week I was in Qatar and we did A collaboration with the FIFA World Cup. And it takes heaps of work. But I think if you're always focused on how can you put the fan first, really think about delivering value for them, you can tend to get over sort of those challenges, where of course, there are conflicts at every single level from a commercial partner perspective. But there's a way through.
0: Yes, indeed. Makes sense. Ellie, ever so briefly, there's been a lot of talk and this time of year, there always is about trends and the future and whatnot. What
1: topic do you think there isn't enough discussion on? What are people missing? Great question, Margaret. I'm not sure whether there's a topic that people are missing, but certainly I think a trend that is increasingly um, important to kind of really focus on is brand and customer experience. So that's not a new trend, but I do think with how the world has changed and actually the blending of a physical and a virtual world, having seamless experiences that pass you off from brand to customer, both across a physical and a virtual space will be a trend that remains vitally important to get right.
0: Thank you very much, Ellie. Let's now go to Peter at Microsoft. Good morning and good evening to you again, Peter. So Peter, your word was empathy. Tell us why.
2: Well, you know, I work in, I look at the Middle East and Africa, which is 79 countries. We liaise with Europe and the US. And certainly over the last two years, it's been really important to understand first colleagues, then customers, countries, markets, industries have responded, recovered, reimagined their life, their business, their commercial model in very different in very different ways. Some bounced back very fast, had high vaccination rates, and actually started to thrive much faster than others, where I look after African markets, and some of them, the vaccination rate is you know, less than 20%. And then we've got everything in between. So being empathetic to that situation and understanding that customers were very going through very different journeys that countries face things differently, individual employees, all, you know, your management style needed to adapt. You know, I think the, my daughter just came in, you might not have seen her, but uh, you know, you had, that used to be a, a kind of big comic thing. Now it's just common practice. It's very hard to have a call without somebody somebody's child coming in and and so i think having that empathy and really as a manager as a leader understanding that your employees are going through very different experiences than you are that your customers are so that's why i say empathy really having to exercise that muscle in a far more profound way that walking a mile in somebody else's shoes is so necessary to be successful in today's day and age
0: Peter, I know empathy is implicit in Microsoft's purpose. Tell us, how do you think about your brand purpose?
2: So Microsoft's mission used to be a PC and every piece on every desk in every home. That's changed really over the last six, seven years to really be enable every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. And That's never been more evident than over the last two years, where digital connections, the thing that we are really best at, have become so necessary for society to continue to function and so super proud of the job that we've done in giving Customers, people, individuals, sometimes governments, institutions, the ability to to function and continue to perform what they do in the face of unprecedented times. So this notion of enabling every every organization, every person on the planet to achieve more, uh, you can almost say in in order to survive, has been really part of the, the mantra for us over the last two years particularly.
0: And of course, business continuity has been a major outcome of your work and Microsoft's offerings during this period. Speak to us about shifts that you've observed, be it in your customers or user behavior that you think are here to stay.
2: So we had customers, particularly government or regulated industries, which for years were resisting any type of cloud adoption, whether it be Office 365 or moving data to the cloud to perform kind of essential services. The pandemic, I think, has changed forever how people think about how work gets done, particularly industries that were lagging behind the rest of the world, particularly in emerging markets. So we saw governments which never would have imagined having their civil service work from home, within three weeks, we would turn on 50, 100, 200,000 users to Teams overnight, almost. We had a million students and teachers in the UAE, for example, adopt Teams classroom as their go-to throughout 2020 and 2021. We saw that in Saudi Arabia earlier this year, the same numbers of people. And it's not just the numbers and the volume, it's the speed and the pace that really took us uh, by surprise. In fact, our global data centers, we ended up having at capacity that usually takes six months, in sometimes one week or two weeks, airlifting servers into data centers around the world to allow people to continue to function. We never have seen this before. And so I think that is here to stay. I think the, the notion of how people do work, where people do work. I don't think we're going back to nine to five, always in the office. I don't I think those that's going to change forever, and no matter what industry that you're in.
0: What are your observations regarding the Asian user of Microsoft's products?
2: So Asia has always been slightly ahead of the curve when it comes to technology adoption. That's definitely true for consumers. It's certainly true for many industries, but you know. I would again talk about governments, healthcare industry, industries that were lagging behind in Asia and the rest of the world. You saw them dramatically shifting how they engage with their citizens, how they provide services. You saw that in countries like Thailand, uh, Singapore, Japan, where services that used to own Mommy. pretty much exclusively be in person now move to a digital uh, framework. So definitely, Asia. I think consumers they adopt uh, technology very fast, but certainly governments, healthcare, banking move much more digitally very fast. And I, I don't think that's going to change.
0: That's well, a very interesting perspective. That it's traversed the consumer to the corporate and government sector. That desire to be early adopter and the ability to do so. I know from many years experience myself in technology, Peter, that partnerships and alliances have been integral to brand building at Microsoft. And I know it's a theme of the conference here today. Ellie touched on collaboration. Any change in the role of partnerships that you've observed at Microsoft over the recent period?
2: So I I wouldn't just say the recent period, if you think about the last five or six years, Microsoft was not the most loved brand in the technology industry historically. And I think we've definitely changed to and that whole notion that I talked about earlier about enabling uh, every person, every customer, that goes to our partners as well. When we invest in a data center in a country, we enable thousands of jobs, hundreds of companies to actually build businesses around those data centers. That's not the old Microsoft, It's very much the new Microsoft that we're there to enable. Our CEO Satya has a, a, a phrase that he uses very frequently, which is, you know, if you wanna be cool, don't come work at Microsoft. If you wanna help others be cool, then this is the place for you. And I, I really think that's a profound statement about this shift in mindset. And that, that's really talking to developers, who wanna build cool apps and things like that, you want to build cool apps? Build it on our platform, and we'll enable you. Versus come and you know develop stuff up for ourselves for our customers. So I think this notion of enabling is very much about partners. So you think globally, you know some of the brands here on on this panel, we work with so many of the Fortune 500 big brands, whether that be gaming developers, whether it be sporting organizations, so on. I mean, all of those companies need technology in a very profound way. I mean, I remember two years ago at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix visiting the Renault uh, Formula One team, and I'd been a fan of Formula One and been blessed to work for brands that sponsor them. And I remember going into the pits in the past and seeing these massive server racks and the amount of technology they had to shift around was incredible. When I went to Renault two years ago, It was one or two PCs all working off the cloud in real time. An incredible change. So technology being an enabler for companies, businesses, partners, so important. And that's kind of what we're all about today.
0: Remarkable transformation indeed. Now, Peter, finally, take out your crystal ball, polish it up, and tell me about something that as you look forward, people aren't talking enough about.
2: I definitely think, you know, I touched on it briefly, hybrid work is is something that people are talking about, but I am not sure that everyone quite grasps exactly how profound that is. You know, we went in our own platform, you know, let's say 100,000 hours, 200,000 hours to 2 billion hours a day in Teams meetings that is just, that's not going to go away. And and the impact that is going to have on real estate, transportation, where, how people live, work, the way their homes are configured, the way that they educate their children, the way they educate themselves. I know you're going to talk later about learning. I mean, how people learn and how they keep themselves educated. I, I see that that hybrid notion that you don't have to do everything in person it is massive. And I, I don't think we're going back. The airline industry is feeling it. The t- hotel and tourism industry is feeling it. This h- notion of hybrid living where work and home, it used, you talk about work-life balance. Today, I think it's a lot more about work, work-life merging and that physically as well as virtually happening today. And, it, you know, it's not going to go away. And I, we probably haven't thought enough about that yet.
0: Thank you, Peter. Fascinating future. Moving to work-life, from work-life balance, I'm not sure we ever figure that one out, to the even more involved challenge of getting the integration and alignment we all need. Thank you for those insights, Peter. Now let's go to Mumbai. Rajasree, how are you? I'm doing
4: good. How are you, Margaret? So authenticity. Tell us why. Uh, well, the pandemic has taught us a lot, right? It's taught us about uh, you know being uh, grateful for who we are. It's taught us empathy. It's shown us how fragile our lives are, and I hope we don't re- we don't forget all this once things are back to normal. Uh, but having said that, if I can be slightly provocative, right? There are a lot of companies who were sort of value based, you know, who were who had a conscience, but a lot of businesses have been almost forced to gain a conscience in the world that we live in today. But, you know, if you look at whether the B2B world or the B2C world, I think customers and employees were actually able to differentiate between companies who are value-based, purpose-based, were authentic to the ones that, that they are not, right? In fact, we work with, you know, hundreds of customers across the world. And as you know, Margaret, we have more than half a million employees across the world. There's one thing we learned is that if you're authentic as a brand, you're authentic as an organization, Organization, then customers react to you and your employees react to you. And I think being authentic really was at, at the core of how we behaved in the in the in the last 18, 20 months. Of course, we were like that before. But to me, the importance of being authentic, importance of being value-based was established, not that from our experience, but how we saw other organizations, especially the ones we work for, um, you know, react and deal with pandemic uh, in this time.
0: I think it's important that the audience appreciate the scale of your operations as a B2B company. You may not be a household name in every market, but with half a million uh, colleagues, and as I understand it, operating in more than 46 countries, you support some of the world's most important, arguably many of the world's most important businesses. Roger Street, you mentioned authenticity, you touched on values. How would you, as the CMO, articulate the purpose of TCS?
4: So uh, purpose is really, as you know, we have the heritage of the Tata group, right, which is really founded on giving back to society. And, you know, our purpose is really about creating a meaningful future with innovation and knowledge. And we embodied this in a statement that we call building on belief. And I, I want to talk to you a little bit about how this, you know, stood us in these times. On March 25th, the Indian government announced a complete shutdown of the country. You know, we have over 100 officers in India. We have about uh, 400,000 employees and everything was shut down. Next day morning, we could go to work, right? What we realized was how many enterprises across the world dependent on us, financial institutions, banks, healthcare institutions, retails, airline, you name it, right? All of these companies dependent on us to keep the lights on and run their business, right? And the way the company rallied around first and foremost to make sure these businesses continue to operate. These are extremely important businesses. They need to work. You need to get your bread and milk and your medicines and and all of that stuff. Right. And I think the whole uh, company, the way we came along and, you know, the whole sense of belief and shared belief that we had was an absolute testimony to uh, to our purpose. And I think that for us became our glue. What you can see behind me is a painting with a colleague has made, which, which is the Building on Belief painting. You know, there were songs that were written, there were cakes that were made. Um, it really became our war cry and, our, and the glue for the organization to respond in this entire Pandemic, so you know I, I can't um, share how important purpose and the and and our statement, the brand statement was during this time. So really a testimony to that. What are your particular
0: observations around changes in customer, or in your case, the consultant, or even end user of the technologies that you help implement? Changes in their behavior that you think are here for the long run.
4: Yeah, it's a very good question, Margaret. I think uh, both Ellie and uh, Fernando mentioned about, you know, changes which uh, Peter mentioned about the the importance of technology. We've been seeing this trend for a very long time, but I think if there's one thing which came to our rescue was technology, and I'll give you a few examples of it, right? For example, in the initial days, you know, we worked with some of our clients to use artificial intelligence to accelerate ventilator uh, manufacturing processes, Uh, we participated. In vaccine development, I'll give you a very interesting story. Right when the entire pandemic happened, you know, we all went and bought toilet paper, and our entire consumption pattern changed. Right? We worked with a lot of retailers to redevelop their forecasting algorithms so that you know we got the products that we wanted. So I think the role of technology now is truly, truly, truly established. You know, we used to spend a lot of time and effort to sell to boards, sell to businesses as to why technology was important and why why we had to implement technology. Now I think that argument is is absolutely proven. Now it's, it's really about helping organizations to adopt the technology. So I think the role of technology really got established front and center across all the businesses whether they are in the B2B space or B2C space. So huge transformation on selling technology and establishing the role of technology in our future. I've certainly observed
0: unexpected partnerships across brands over the past couple of years. Anything you would highlight from TCS's perspective around collaborations that were integral to the brand but may not have been conceived of prior to this period?
4: Yeah, we really operate in an ecosystem, right? So we are an orchestrator, we, we, you know, we have partnership with our clients, we have partnership with, uh, you know, folks like Microsoft. So we really work in an ecosystem. But one particular partnership I'm really proud of, you know, our focus really is on realizing human potential using technology. That's really at the core of who we are and what we want to do. And one of our, I think, exciting sponsorships has been our relationship with all the leading marathons in the world. You know that we sponsor the new York Marathon. We are going to take over the sponsorship of London Marathon next year. We sponsor about 15 marathons across the world. And, uh, you know, I think uh, first and foremost, when the par- marathons, when I'm sure there are people on the call who run and love running, right? So, This is such an inclusive sport. Uh, It's such an inclusive activity. It pushes human to perform at their best. It's really bound on the belief that you can run the 42 uh, miles that you run. So we are really proud of our partnership with marathons. And I think that's been a great platform for us to talk about TCS, but also to really see human potential realized at at its best. So I'm, I'm really proud of that one.
0: Rajasri, you have a really interesting perch to look to the future. And I know you publish a lot of trends. I'm going to ask you the same question. What is a trend on the horizon that people aren't paying enough attention to?
4: Yeah, we spoke a few about a few of them about hybrid working, changing changing consumer experience. But I think there's one very fundamental trend which we aren't talking about. We very strongly believe that organizations have to necessarily operate differently in the future. We call, we talk about a new operating model. The way we used to function earlier is not going to help us to function the way we want to in the future, right? We are talking about borderless, we are talking about resilience, we're talking about adaptability, we're talking about innovation. Consumption patterns in every industry has transformed, whether it's financial services, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education. We really believe that organizations have to go back to the drawing board and essentially re-architect how they operate. And I think that's very, very fundamental. And we're doing a lot of work around it. We call it the new operating model. I think there hasn't been enough conversation about it. And I think we need to talk, talk a lot more about how the future enterprises look like very intriguing.
0: I'm sure many of us will agree that there's a need to talk about the future operating model. Thank you for that, Roger Sri. Thank you. Now let's go to Miami. Fernando, Activision Blizzard, Oh, my gosh. When I told my children that I was talking uh, to you, we found some old Skylanders in the closet uh, yeah. from when they were younger and uh, lots of uh, lots of joy. So in addition to joy, the word you shared was a connection. Tell us why that's your greatest lesson from the pandemic period.
3: Yeah, look, I mean, I'm the type of person who I, I was used to arrive in the office, drop my backpack. On my desk and spend like the whole day walking around talking to people i never even like book meeting rooms uh, to connect with people I would just like grab people like in informal areas coffee areas you know like i would have like very like lots of informal meetings throughout the day and uh and we, when we were hit with the pandemic i had to completely adjust and adapt right because i couldn't do that anymore everyone was working from home and and in the beginning it was hard you know, I think it was hard for all of us. And uh, and to me, it was very hard because I was not used to have such like a, a organized calendar and have to schedule Zoom calls to talk to everyone that I had to connect with. And uh, and that proved to be a key point of strength. You know, like I think that at least on my previous job, which is when, when the pandemic hit us, I think that I was, even though I was not in the office, I felt more connected to people than ever before. You know, I think that maybe it's a mix of us all sharing the same like difficulties and and being like, um, like in lockdown combined with being able to connect with people virtually, a phone conference, even though video conference was available, we would do much more phone conferences than video conferences. So, and I think it was really important to have the entire leadership team, both on my previous job and on my new job like really focusing on connecting with people, you know, like in building bridges and, and, and fostering the feeling that we were all together uh, on that journey. So that's why, but like it could like, it's a mix of connection with empathy, with hope, with all the things that uh, people in the panel have said before.
4: So let's
0: talk more specifically around Activision Blizzard, hundreds of millions of active monthly users across over 190 countries. What's your purpose?
3: Yeah. So like our purpose, the way we describe it is to connect and engage the world through epic entertainment. You know, like uh, I think that when I was a kid, I used to like uh, play by myself. Right. I mean, I, I played video games since I was a little kid, to be honest with you. And, and I remember my mom calling me to have dinner and I would pause the game on my Nintendo uh, and, uh, and go have dinner and come back and continue to play. The industry has evolved a lot. Right. I mean, today, games are like we don't even use the word gamers anymore because everyone kind of plays uh, in some sort of game. And it is really becoming like a a social hub, you know, like where people meet up. You know, I meet with my friends playing Call of Duty and we talk. It's like going to a bar or going to a restaurant or meeting someone's house. You know, we meet in this virtual space. And that's why we describe our purpose as um, uh, engage and connect the world to epic entertainment. You know, Uh, and I think throughout the pandemic, since you're talking so much about that, the the need only became greater. Right. I mean, because people could not meet like uh, face to face. And what we've seen was like a a dramatic acceleration uh, in terms of people playing together and, and games becoming a social hub for people to meet up and coming out of the pandemic. Like uh, that continues, you know, like so both at Activision and all my previous life, what I've experienced was like the pandemic accelerating some of the trends that were already existing, you know, like, and as we come out of the pandemic, the, maybe the acceleration is not the, the same line, but it continues to grow, you know, like there is no turning back basically.
0: Talk to us about collaboration, because clearly with that volume of active users, you have a very dominant mind share in uh, the, in the hearts and minds of many of those users. Certainly, I have plenty of evidence of it in my home. Um, so so tell me about collaborations. How do they play a role? Because there were quite a number of novel collaborations during the past number of years. Yeah.
3: We have all sorts of collaborations, to be honest. Like uh, we collaborate with Microsoft, we collaborate with Sony, uh, we collaborate with Google. We have collaborations where as gaming becomes so huge, and you were talking about hundreds of millions of like active, monthly active players, like some of the games, they become almost like... Uh, a channel uh, in itself you know like so if you think about just as a as one example just to open people's minds like if you think about if you were like a, an artist a musician like uh, I think that growing up the best way to launch a new track would probably be going to MTV like uh, that's probably like very telling of my age and, and today like uh, one of the best ways to do that is to basically like, put, the, put the, the, the track in the game you know, and you automatically have like uh, hundreds of millions of people as an audience. So we do collaborate with artists, as an example, to to launch tracks. You know what I mean? Like we just launched as part of Call of Duty the new title. We did a collaboration with uh, with Jack White to launch his new track, the the, the lead singer for the for the White Stripes. So he released his new track as part of a Call of Duty campaign, which is like shows the power and, and the reach that gaming can have. So We we collaborate with uh, CPG like uh, for like co-branded products. We collaborate with clothing, like we had a a collaboration with Alpha Jackets, which is a really cool bomber jacket. Anyway, so it it is a like it it is a world of opportunity when it comes to collaboration and gaming.
0: And your trend, the trend people aren't talking about enough that you have visibility to because of your reach and access to consumer behavior.
3: Yeah, look, I mean, there are so many trends out there, you know, like I think that if I talk like um, at like a personal level and a professional level separately, I think that one thing and of course, I'm, I'm a bit biased on that, but it's kind of funny because I joined Activision Blizzard around eight, nine months ago. And when I joined, like all my friends were like super excited, gaming, right? I mean, similar reaction to what you had, like what you described, like in the beginning of the conversation. And uh, but they, I don't think that people and they are all professionals like us. Uh, and I don't think that they realize how big gaming is. You know what I mean? Like uh, so, when I go to people and say like, "How? What do you think is bigger, gaming or the movie industry?" They're like, "Of course it's movie." Like, uh, "What's bigger, music or gaming?" And so, like, of course, it's music. And and gaming is bigger than music plus movies. And even though everyone knows uh, it's growing and it's kind of like a hot Industry, I don't think people realize yet. Like, uh, people don't realize that Candy Crush has 250 plus million uh, monthly active users. Candy Crush has 4.3 billion downloads, Uh, it's a 10 year old game. People still think that maybe the gamer, which is a word that we don't use, but it's like someone, some teenager on the basement playing a little bit in the dark you know, like super nerdy and it isn't, you know what I mean? Like, uh, okay. uh, so I think that there is a lot of opportunities to dismystify and better understand the gaming industry. And and look, and at a personal level, I think that uh, I think that a word that really stuck with me on this whole conversation was empathy. And, uh, and I think that I see the surge of a much more empathetic leadership style because of another thing that some some have said in the panel which was that it becomes very hard to separate personal and professional life you know i'm i'm zooming here from my my house like i have a little office and every now and then one of the little guys opens the door and like I, I, hopefully it didn't happen this time but like invades my my presentations and it, you can't you can't detach you know like I, so it becomes much more like what you see is what you get which hopefully as we get out of the pandemic it will continue to some extent, you know. Like uh, it's a good reminder that people have personal lives and and that the, the life happens out there. It's not just work.
0: Interesting. Well, thank you, Fernando, and really appreciate the choice of the word invade from a a gentleman (laughs) at the the gamer world in the gaming industry. Beautiful. I love how it's uh, impacted you already. Okay, folks, so thank you all for sharing those learnings. I want us now to just spend a few moments as we go around and what we dub our commitments round to talk about learning, the discipline of learning more generally. So this is the one question I'm going to ask of all of the panelists, and it is learning has been a big theme of this conversation. How do you commit to learning personally and creating a learning culture in your marketing team? And finally, what advice do you have for leaders who want to stay ahead and learn about the customer? Now, as our panellists think about that question, I invite the audience to share their thoughts, their commitments and their tips for learning in the chat. And we will collate those later. Ellie, may I start with you, please?
1: Thanks, Margaret. So learning is, is constant. And um, I always think that every day is a school day. So um I'm much more a, a snackable learner versus kind of long discipline learning. So I tend to watch a lot of video content TED Talks and follow sort of uh, people, um, such as Richard Tabakwala, And um, he's got some incredible kind of Twitter lists. So that for me is sort of a, a constant source every single day. Um, I do a 90 minute commute when I'm in the UK into the office. So that's my sort of time that I carve out to do that.
0: And anything you would add in terms of your team? How do you encourage a learning culture?
1: So with the team, it's very much to be curious and to be sort of open. And I think that Life is enriched by travel and by spending time with different people from different backgrounds and sort of cultures and actually just going into other industries and sort of disciplines. And often that's where the sort of ideas will happen when you're least expecting it. So um, often I'll be sort of encouraging the team to be sort of reading and sort of discovering and, and staying on top of what's happening outside of sports and where can we take learnings and apply that considering sort of our ambitions and what we want to do Thank and, you, and to share that as well it's so important like if you find something really interesting share that amongst your colleagues
0: and Peter sends apologies he had to jump off but he did share his tips for me Peter said learning for me is a habit a muscle to exercise I try to set goals for myself to help staying in that learning zone For example, in 21, I said I had to read a book a month, any type of book without fail to keep pushing that learning mindset. I often give books out at team meetings. To stay ahead of the market or customers, I try to put on my marketing hat whenever I'm having personal customer experiences, especially if it is at either end of the good or the bad spectrum. I do this to understand why I am liking or not liking an ad, ad, a purchase, a customer service experience, and decipher how much of that is intentional on the part of the brand and how I can bring that into my own work. So that is Peter's thoughts on learning registry, Yours, please.
4: Well, my life is the way I've meandered from marketing to tech to building products and now back to marketing. It's been it's been an amazing learning journey. I have to give you a music reference as I always give Margaret, but I did an interview or or heard an interview of an artist who said that if you're, you know, when you're making an album, right, you're essentially going through a lot of frustration. And if you are not frustrated, you are unlikely to create a good album, right? For me, learning is about being in a a zone of discomfort, uh, feeling uncomfortable, uh, going to areas which which you have not treaded before. And I was just talking about this to a colleague of mine today. I said, if you don't feel uncomfortable every day, that means you're not learning, right? So I think that's really the core to learning. And I I was very inspired by that interview. But I was just telling this to a colleague of mine every day. Today, I said, you have to feel uncomfortable every day, ways you're not trying something out and you're not you're not learning every day so that for me is is learning margaret
0: fernando what is your commitment to learning
3: yeah to me like when i think about the moments in time when i've learned the most it was probably like uh, when when i was feeling uncomfortable and when i was trying to do something new and when i was empowered to make some decisions you know i think we learn more when we when we get things wrong uh, than when we get things right just like personal uh personal observation about myself so uh, what i try to do is to create an environment where where people are empowered and where people know that i will have their backs in case things don't work you know because like uh, since you're talking about formula one I think Mario Andretti did run Formula One and Indy, if I recall correctly, and he used to say something like, "If you're not uh, racing, uh, if if everything is under control, you're not racing fast enough." And and I think that like uh, that's to me is like uh, how you learn, you know, by trying to do some, fit something new, by putting yourself out there. Uh, and I try to do that to push the boundaries, especially when it comes to creative. But I also try to make sure that I'm creating the right environment so that the team can learn.
0: Marvelous. Thank you for that, Fernando. So in thanking our panel, here are my reflections. In listening to this conversation, it is clear that to perform dynamically, marketers must adapt continuously, and this requires intentional ongoing learning. Yet, I found that learning to learn is one of the most overlooked capabilities of CMOs and their organization. While this panel focused on marketers, the value of learning to learn is universal. Here are three practices that I try to incorporate myself and nurture in my teams as we strive for a learning culture. One, perspective taking. A useful model to gain perspective is the practice of moving from the dance floor to the balcony. Coined by Heifetz and Linsky of Harvard, it describes the mental exercise of stepping back from the action and assessing how effectively your teams and strategies are working. We heard echoes of this in the responses from our CMO panel today. Optimal engagement on the dance floor builds credibility, Provides a frontline experience and ensures a direct understanding of the realities confronting your teams and other stakeholders. Meanwhile, time spent on the balcony allows you to examine patterns, reevaluate assumptions, and make non obvious connections. Adaptive leaders need to do both. Two, psychological safety. A prerequisite to rapid and sustained learning is psychological safety. Harvard professor Amy Edmondson studied this in the workplace and found that psychological safety is present in an organization when there is a willingness to speak freely and candidly in a timely manner across all levels without risk of punishment or humiliation. I think of this as creating a space where colleagues can speak in draft form and where learning systems are designed as part of the work routine, not confined to separate training activities. Environments with high psychological safety generate learning and increase the likelihood of effective execution of the decisions made from the learning. Three, unlearning. An often neglected concept of learning is the process of unlearning. The philosopher Henry David Thoreau tells us, When any real progress is made, we unlearn and learn anew what we thought we knew before. Unlearning does not mean forgetting. Instead, it's about the ability to choose the right paradigm based on your context. As we heard from the CMOs here today, this pandemic has focused a light on brand purpose upended customer behavior and dismantled ecosystem norms. These upheavals have placed some business and marketing truths on hold while rendering others obsolete. To adapt, we must unlearn the old mental models to make room for the new. With that, My sincere thanks to our CMOs. We look forward to tracking your progress as you live out the commitments shared today. Thank you to our audience. And you can listen to all my previous CMO roundtables by following How CMOs Commit wherever you listen to podcasts. I would very much appreciate a review and a rating. Once again, thank you to Martin Murray, Sam Hobbs, and the team at Asia Matters for inviting me to curate this conversation. All that remains is for me to say thank you. This is Margaret Malloy, CMO of Siegel & Gale, thanking you and wishing you a very successful summit. Thank you for joining How CMOs Commit. You've heard the strategic insights and professional commitments of top brand builders from around the world. I hope you also enjoyed my reflections on how this conversation is relevant to all marketers. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And please rate, review and share this podcast. Until next time, this is how CMOs commit.